stuff they're going to show. Who, has anybody seen it? I saw it. It's unbelievable. And I'm going to tell you something right now. It ain't about horses. Okay? It's, it's about chiropractic. I, I, Jay sent that to me a few weeks ago, and I know I'm off topic here, but I, I got to say this. He sent that to me, I watched it, and I watched it at a time when something was happening to me having to do with this profession, one of these little battles that we all get involved in in, this, in chiropractic. And I just, I needed it so much. It just, it hit me right in the heart. It reminded me of why I became a chiropractor to begin with. Uh, that movie's powerful. I mean, you know, we got a lot of documentaries and other stuff circulating in this profession. That's the movie we should be promoting to our patients and to the public. That movie that Jay did. I want to thank him for that. So, let's get started here. Uh, my job is to talk about this topic here relative to the spectrum of care that chiropractors are engaged in. Okay? We're going to talk about this landscape we find ourselves in. And as most of you probably know, but for those that don't, 
you know, the lens through which I look at this. I run a malpractice insurance program. I've been involved as an expert witness for over 20 years now defending straight chiropractors. And I, I use the air quote just because, you know, I don't know that that term has any meaning anymore. I mean, it used to. I grew up in this profession. I grew up around the straight faction of the profession. And, and, and when I grew up in the profession with that term, that term meant something. If you said you were a straight chiropractor, people knew what you were talking about. I don't think anybody knows what you're talking about anymore when you say that. You could be doing this, you could be doing that, who knows? So the lens that I look at this through is through that defense of chiropractors over the years who have been, who have had to fight for their lives, literally, okay? Because somebody within our profession went after them for the style of practice that they embraced. Who, who in here saw the movie uh, Pulp Fiction? Anybody see Pulp Fiction? All right, my kind of crap. <laughs> I'm Mr. Wolf, you understand? I get those phone calls. You know what I'm saying? And I got to go in and clean it up. And I got to help these people. And I have sat through long nights with many chiropractors over the years holding their hand through some pretty dark times. And, and you don't realize it until you're in the midst of it. You don't realize until you're in the midst of, of a regulatory board who is supposed to be your brethren trying to take away your livelihood and your right to practice, to try to take your license away from you. And, you know, people talk about malpractice and patients suing them. You know, for the straight chiropractor these days, what you got to be more worried about are the regulatory boards, to be very honest with you. So we're going to get into this a little bit here today. Obviously, I, I probably don't need to spend much time on this, but, you know, my focus is this. My focus is the strategic competitive advantage of the chiropractic profession, which is vertebral subluxation. I understand that chiropractors do other things, but chiropractic is not what chiropractors do, you see? And I'm not putting down anything else that people do in their practice. You can do whatever, you, else you, want, whatever you want to do in your practice, but let's understand what chiropractic is. And chiropractic is the location analysis of correction of vertebral subluxation. Right? So we're, going to, we're starting with that premise. The problem is that <clears throat> what's happening in the regulatory environment, what's happening in the political environment in, in our profession is subluxation-centered chiropractors are being couched or being framed as committing fraud. I mean, this is the type of stuff that's going on. Examples of this. And I'm just giving you a couple of, I could give you hundreds, exam, uh, hundreds of examples of this. We had not too long ago in Europe all of the schools over there, except for a couple of them, Barcelona, McTimony, all signed this statement, this anti-subluxation position statement, relegating subluxation to history, and making this statement that if you're evidence-based, then how could you embrace subluxation? I was having a conversation with uh, Dr. McMaster earlier this afternoon. The, you know, the reality is that the detractors 
on the allopathic side of our profession that want us to be a subset of medicine, they're the ones that don't have the evidence, but they have been able to interject this intellectual sleight of hand and they've gotten so good at it that they've been able to make it look like we're the ones that don't have the evidence. And we actually have more evidence than they do for our style of practice. That's the reality of it. We have organizations within the profession. ACA recently coming out wanting to remove subluxation language from Medicare because that's the only way we're going to be accepted. That's the only way that we're going to be considered primary healthcare physicians and be able to bill for the full scope of services that are allowed in our state. This is the direction the profession is moving in. We have the events in Australia. Now, the stuff in Australia, while it might be new to some of you, have actually been going on for a long time, a number of years ago. And the crux of it is, you guys know what I'm talking about with this? You guys saw the, the video of uh, Dr. Ian adjusting that little baby that had colic, and he, the video ended up on the internet, and the Australian board went after him for that. Because the Australian board came out prior to that video being posted and said <clears throat> that that's not evidence-based. And the crux of it is how they define the type of evidence that you need to have. And the way the cartel in the profession has defined it is it's not evidence unless it's an RCT. Unless it's a randomized, double-blind, clinically controlled trial, it's not evidence. Now, that's not what evidence-based practice means, okay? But again, this intellectual sleight of hand, they are able to, because of the control that they have over the profession, they're able to pull the wool over people's eyes and make them believe that that's the reality. Where does all that come from? This is really the, the nidus for it. This is the Bronfurt Report. I want you to look at some of the author's names here. Okay? This will become important a little bit later on, especially the lead author, Bronfurt, and the final author here on the end. This paper, published in the Journal of Chiropractic and Osteopathy, is where it all started. Bronfurt did a review of the literature, and he basically summarized that literature, came to the conclusion and recommendations of what we could consider evidence-based practice in chiropractic. And his criteria for this was whether or not the, um, the condition, because it's all condition-based, unfortunately, had RCTs to support it. Okay? So he ushered that in. He gave them this document published in a peer-reviewed research journal, a chiropractic supposed peer-reviewed research journal, and this is why Australia's done what it's done, and this is why all these other jurisdictions have fallen into line. Here's a letter from National University. This is a letter written to a chiropractor subluxation-centered chiropractor who applied to National to be a preceptor, you know, to take students in and help train them during their education. So this is the letter denying him entrance into that preceptorship program, this chiropractor entrance into it, and I'll blow it up here so you can see the reasons why. The first reason is we don't like your records, okay? 
I, I, you know, I've been looking at chiropractors' records for over 20 years, and I've never seen records I liked. <laughs> I mean, with their doctor's records, you know, there's going to be problems, right? The second reason was philosophical incompatibility, e.g., subluxation-based practice. So they won't let him into their preceptorship program because he's a subluxation-centered chiropractor. The last reason is they don't like his records. So we don't like your records, you're subluxation-based, and we don't like your records. Right? <laughs> this is a letter I got not too long ago for the newest chiropractic program in our profession. This is Kaiser University down in South Florida that decided to start a chiropractic program. Okay? And in the letter, the dean of the College of Chiropractic Medicine, all right, is fishing for preceptors, right? They want, they want chiropractors that are willing to help him train these, these students that are going to be going through this program. And I'm licensed in Florida, so that's why I got one of these letters. Well, in the letter, you know, he says there's not been a new chiropractic program in the state since 2002. We are the first program located in South Florida. Our program will stress evidence-based practice, interprofessional collaboration, and the role of the chiropractor as a team member in healthcare delivery. Well, who could, there's nothing wrong with that, sounds great, kumbaya, let's hold hands and all get along, right? Who could be against that? We will follow the model of chiropractic as spine care as described in the seminal paper by Nelson et al. in 2005. Look at the authors. Yeah. Now, who knows who these two knuckleheads are? Anybody ever heard of a, of a little managed care organization doing business in chiropractic called ASH? Yeah, oh, it was right. Yeah. The largest managed care organization doing business in this profession. At least 30,000 chiropractors are enrolled in their program. Okay. How many active practitioners do you think are in the United States crunching bones full-time, you know, 30, 40 hours a week? There's not many more than 30,000. So you're talking about the majority of chiropractors that have willingly signed on to this model. Well, Kaiser is going to teach that model. You know, what's going on here? How many pieces of the puzzle do we need until we figure out what it is? Here's what's in the paper. I took some snapshots out of the paper that they're going to base their curriculum on. The argument that the public can be persuaded to understand and accept the subluxation model of chiropractic has been tested and it has failed. The profession is further encumbered by questionable institutionalized practices. For example, some practice consultants promote the policy of withholding administration or treatment on the first visit, preferring to reschedule the patient for a report of findings on a subsequent visit. Where is the clinical rationale for such practice? Are these doctors insufficiently skilled in interpreting the history and examination findings for a routine first visit without time to confer and study? Others promote the use of x-rays on nearly every patient in order to determine biomechanical deviations from a theoretical model of a normal spine, implying that this information is so essential to successful treatment that the benefit outweighs the very real risk of radiation exposure. These and other business practices promoted across the profession are tolerated without any challenge by the rank and file. These practices degrade the credibility of the profession and its members as competent clinicians and diminish the public's trust and level of cultural authority. Right? Taking an x-ray to determine 
whether or not there is a misalignment component of vertebral subluxation, and then to determine what your vector is going to be so that you can appropriately reduce that misalignment component, that degrades the credibility of the profession. But laying somebody down at a table and just monkey justing them, that's okay. We're good with that. Despite the critical threats to the validity of this paradigm, a sizable proportion of the profession still holds these postulates to be valid. He's talking about, talking about Palmer's postulates. The segment of the profession that continues to hold firmly to Palmer's postulates do so only through a suspension of disbelief. What, what are Palmer's postulates? The body is a self-healing, self-regulating organism. The nervous system controls and coordinates uh, the healing in the body, subluxations can interfere with that, chiropractors correct subluxation. I mean, that, that's what they're talking about. And they're, 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 what they're saying to you if you follow those postulates is the only way that you can do that is suspend your belief, disbelief. They're calling you pretty ignorant, basically. And that's probably a nice way of putting it. Vitalism does not require any further or more extensive analysis before rejecting it. To reject vitalism is to imply, is simply to announce that one accepts the conventional view of biology similar to the way one accepts the conventional view of cosmology by rejecting a geocentric universe. Yeah, so if you believe in vitalism, you know, you still believe that the entire universe revolves around the earth. That's what they're talking about, geocentric universe. Okay. They put this as in a peer-reviewed research journal. These people are leaders within the profession. They may not be your leaders, but you need to understand that they have control of the profession. And for those of you that haven't heard this message before, there is a cartel operating within the chiropractic profession. And that cartel has a monopoly on the licensing and regulatory and educational functions of the entire profession. That's not the world according to McCoy. That's the world according to the United States Department of Education. They said that in their transcripts of the hearing when CCE was up for their renewal a few years ago. <clears throat> you know, I told you I get to see some of the seedy underside of this profession. And what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes is something that's needs to become very important to those of you that believe in a subluxation model based, you know, in terms of a practice based on subluxation. If you embrace a non-therapeutic model, if you embrace a membership style practice or anything along those lines close to that, you need to be paying very close attention to what's happening in the regulatory landscape right now. I'm going to give you just two examples. There are two of many examples that are going on right now. But I don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to give you two. I had a conversation not too long ago with a chiropractor. And mind you, he's not insured with us. He's not insured with us, and I'll show you this later, because he neglect, when he got dinged by the board, he neglected to tell his insurance carrier within three days of finding out about it himself. So they won't cover him, and they've let him out to dry. And so he ended up, eventually ended up on my doorstep, and we're trying to help him sort through this. But the first time I spoke to this guy, he had already been to a hearing before the board. And he is describing to me the opening statement of the chairman of the board. 
and he said the chairman of the board leaned over the table and you got to imagine you know, you're by yourself you're a chiropractor you're sitting on one side you got the entire board including their attorney sitting there and he, the chairman of the board leans across the table points his finger at him and says we will shut you down. We've seen many people like you before, and we have shut them down, and we will do the same thing to you. And when, when this chiropractor told me that, well, he's got to be exaggerated. There's no way anybody's going to just come right out and say that. I ended up having a conversation with his attorney. His attorney verified the whole thing. His attorney was like, in, in his whole entire legal career, had never seen anything like that before. He couldn't believe that that was happening that a regulatory board member said that to somebody. The scary thing is, I'm gonna show you two of these cases, that's one of the cases. The other guy, same exact thing. A different regulatory board. I'm talking to this chiropractor not too long ago and he proceeds to tell me how the chairman of the board leans across the desk and says, we're gonna shut you down. It's like, what, uh, is this, uh, am I imagining this? So that's the premise to start this. Here are the statements of action against uh, this first chiropractor. The chiropractor has failed to conform to the standards of acceptable care for examination and diagnosis and for chiropractic adjusted procedures in violation of the statute. Here are the four items. He takes no vital signs on patients and his physical examination is limited to the identification of spinal subluxations. He does not record a diagnosis other than spinal subluxation for any patient. He performs spinal manipulations on all patients without first documenting the need for such treatment. That's not true. He does document the need for the care because he's documenting the findings related to vertebral subluxation, but that's not enough for them. They want a complete physical examination on, this guy, on these patients. Okay? He allows patients to determine the number and frequency of spinal manipulations they receive, thereby abdicating his professional responsibility to develop treatment plans tailored to the needs of individual patients. This chiropractor is a membership practice, so he educates his patients at some point that, listen, this is unlimited care at a fixed fee. If you feel like you need to come in, come on in, and we'll check you out. They're saying, no, 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 that that's violates the standard of care. This is, from the, this is also from the document. They talk about what constitutes you know, acceptable care or practicing below the standard of care. Not rendering acceptable care in the practice of the profession shall be a basis for imposition of disciplinary sanctions. Uh, the standard of acceptable care for examination and diagnosis for chiropractic adjusted procedures shall be the usual and customary methods as taught in the majority of recognized chiropractic colleges. We'll get into this a little bit more in, in a second, but you need to understand something that in order to be accredited, chiropractic colleges must train its students and its graduates to be primary care physicians. Okay? That's the extent of the training that they are getting. Now, it used to be this whole discussion you know, in, the, in the 90s in chiropractic, live and let live. You know, we will legislate broadly in other words, we'll have a, a, a large scope, we'll have a full scope practice, but if you want, we'll allow you to practice narrow, in a narrow scope. If you want to just correct subluxations, we'll let you do that. But we're going to legislate a broad scope, and we'll leave you alone. Live and let live was the mantra. Well, that didn't happen even in the early 90s, and it's certainly not happening now. What these boards are expecting you to do is to practice to the fullest extent of the scope. Okay? And they're not, they're taking away your right to practice in a narrow fashion. 
The majority of recognized uh, chiropractic colleges teach that vital signs are revealing indicators of a patient's overall health and should be taken during the initial examination and routinely thereafter. The majority of recognized chiropractic colleges teach that chiropractic physicians should perform an initial exam that is sufficiently comprehensive to allow the physician to reasonably assess whether the patient's injury or condition can be treated successfully through chiropractic care, i.e. a differential diagnosis. They are mandating a differential diagnosis. So you cannot just note the patient is subluxated, you must note their other comorbidities as well. The majority of recognized schools teach chiropractic physicians should first identify through palpation, neurological orthopedic testing and x-rays if needed the location of spinal subluxations and perform only adjustive procedures that are documented through the examination process. And I want you to you know, note what they're defining as the examination process. Now here's the funny part if there's anything funny about this, here's the law or the definition of chiropractic in that state. Chiropractic is here and defined to be the science of adjusting the cause of disease by realigning the spine, releasing pressure on nerves, radiating from the spine to all parts of the body and allowing the nerves to carry their full quota of health current, otherwise known as nerve energy from the brain to all parts of the body. That's the definition of chiropractic, but you're not allowed to do that. This is crazy making, okay? Now, I understand it because I see it all the time. But you can imagine the chiropractor who's looking at the law and the board is coming after him. He's like, I don't understand what I did wrong. And here's, and let me explain to you how this happens. You'll notice if you read this, nerve energy, quota of health current, that's what, that language. That's, that language sounds old because it is. It was written a long time ago. It was written during a time period when all of the laws in the United States for chiropractic were being written. And so we have some of this terminology that, you know, is part of the, the foundational principles and tenets of chiropractic in these laws. To change a law, hopefully you realize you have to go to the legislature. So it's hard to change a law. So a lot of these laws remain the same with the same language as they had when they were written in the 20s or 30s. But what boards can do, because the legislature gives them the latitude to do it, boards can enact policies, rules, and regulations to interpret the law and to help them enforce it. So what the boards have done, because they don't want to deal with the messiness of going to the legislature, and there could be some chiropractic advocates out there that try to stop them from changing the law. What do they do? They adopt these board policies that expand the scope and make you responsible for fulfilling all of the responsibilities of a primary health care provider. This is the other one. This is just some of the highlights from this guy's um, complaint. Failure to evaluate past conditions or trauma. Failure to evaluate past or current treatment either by physicians or chiropractors even when there is an indication that such has occurred. Why, why is that a big deal? Well, because it's part of the responsibility of being a primary healthcare provider. If you're a primary healthcare provider, you need to communicate with the other healthcare providers that that person is seeing and you need to incorporate what they are doing into your management plan and into your records. And so you're saying if you didn't do that, then you're in violation of the standard of care. Failure to fully evaluate the patient's current conditions, including onset, aggravated factors, intensity, frequency. I mean, some of this is just garden variety record keeping and documentation, but a lot of it crosses the line. 
Here's an example they actually use in the complaint. Patient presented with headaches. You entered a cryptic note stating, told her to consult with her physician. You made no attempt to determine the nature of the headaches. You did not follow up on the referral to her physician. This patient also indicated she had previous chiropractic care, but you failed to obtain those records or gather additional information on this care. Patient presented with extreme low back pain. You made no attempt to determine the nature of the pain, but rather referred him to a physician. You then made no follow-up on this referral. So this is a membership practice. The patient came in, complained of low back pain. The guy said, listen, I'm a subluxation-centered chiropractor. I'm going to check you and analyze you, see if you're subluxated. If you're subluxated, I can help you. This low back pain stuff, uh, that's not my focus. So if you want to get treatment for that low back pain, go see your MD. They're saying you can't do that. The boards are interfering with your contractual relationship with patients. And, we're, and we are allowing them to get away with it. You failed to evaluate the patient's family history. You failed to perform any initial or re-examinations. Now, he did a chiropractic exam, but what they want is all the pushing on heads and lifting legs and comprehensive physical examination. You failed to provide a diagnosis and support the patient's diagnosis by subjective objective findings. In fact, your patient-client contracts clearly state you don't provide a diagnosis. You failed to create treatment plans for your patients. Adequate health records, failed to keep uh, written chiropractic records justifying the course of treatment of the patient. And by the way, this is the notice, and, and both of these guys both had the same insurance company. This is the part of the letter from the insurance company saying, you know, you didn't let us know within three days of the incident, so you have no coverage for this. You're on your own. Stuff that keeps me awake at night. What we're seeing, if you look at the top, this is, a, this is a malpractice case. It's actually a stroke case. I'm using it as an, as an example of the kind of stuff we're seeing out there because plaintiff's attorneys are learning that there is some disagreement within the chiropractic profession on this subluxation thing. They're learning that there's some contention about it, and they're seeing that some of this is coming from leadership within the profession, including our own accrediting agency. And so what they're doing is they're starting to file fraud complaints against these chiropractors along with their malpractice complaints. And you can see it in the language here. Defendants falsely represented that plaintiffs and their two-year-old daughter all had a disease process afflicting their spines or subluxations in the jargon of the chiropractic community. By the way, subluxations is in quotes for those that can't see that, right? Because they're not really real, you know, subluxations. Defendants falsely represented that plaintiffs needed x-rays to confirm the presence of subluxations, thereby unnecessarily exposing them to high levels of radiation. They falsely represented that plaintiffs and their two-year-old daughter all had a disease process afflicting their spine subluxations and recommended unnecessary and dangerous cervical manipulation to treat their disease for which defendants charged a fee. This isn't an isolated case. Attorneys learn from each other. Right? They go to conventions and they learn, hey, how are you trying these chiropractic cases? Let's look at Colorado, since that's where we are tonight. This is from uh, the law in Colorado. A couple of things to point out here. This is a section of the law that talks about procedures which are unproven and require informed consent, and they list them. You know, they list some odd ones that might be obvious to people, iridology, reflexology, contact reflex analysis, things like that. 
diagnostic ultrasound. But here's the kicker. Any practice system analysis method or protocol which does not include the complete assessment, evaluation, or diagnosis of the condition to be treated before beginning treatment of the patient. Now, again, you've got to remember, what do they consider to be the complete evaluation of the patient? It's certainly not just checking them to see if they're subluxated. Any practice system analysis method or protocol which relies upon diagnostic methods that are not generally recognized or accepted within the profession. Well, who makes that determination? Right? What's taught in the schools? What does CCE allow? These types of things. Okay? Any practice system, and, and, and this one, as Dr. Kent will say, will really get your sphincters fibrillating. Any practice system analysis method or protocol which is represented as a means of attaining spiritual growth, comfort, or well-being. Are you freaking kidding me? Who practices in Colorado? This is in your freaking law. I mean, if this isn't a sign that you need to get involved in what's happening in your state, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what will wake you up. It continues. Engaging in any of the following activities and practices, this has to do with um, you know, what constitutes unprofessional conduct. They talk about unnecessary laboratory tests, uh, treatment which is demonstrably unnecessary. Again, how is that determined? The failure to obtain consultations or perform referrals and failing to do so is not consistent with the standard of care for the professional ordering or performing without clinical justification any service extra treatment, which is contrary to recognized standards of the practice of chiropractic as interpreted by the board. The board gets to interpret this. So you understand that whether you live or die is determined by who's on the board in your state? Here's the definition of chiropractic in Colorado. The premise that disease is attributed to the abnormal function of the human nervous system. It includes the diagnosing and analyzing of human ailments. The reason I have diagnosing underlined is because when you read these laws, some of it you like, others you get a little concerned about. But let's understand that if you are in the camp in this profession, that is pushing us towards the allopathic practice of chiropractic, then you're going to interpret what you do in practice to the broadest extent. So are you practicing, are you diagnosing to the broadest extent of the people sitting on the board that get to interpret that? The rest of it, you know, sounds like a, a, a good law. Talk about abnormal functioning in the nervous system. But here we go. More effect and the use of sanitary hygienic, and they go on to talk about nutritional and physical. You should understand that when the word sanitary and hy hygiene is used, that's talking about public health. Okay? That's that means vaccinations. That means all of, everything that falls under the umbrella of public health. That's pretty damn broad. So one of the things we're seeing, and we especially saw this in California over the past couple of years, is chiropractors getting attacked by the board because patients were filing complaints against the chiropractor because they were browbeating them into this vaccination thing. Now I'm saying browbeating, that's the patient's interpretation, right? So chiropractors have to be careful about the kinds of conversations you have with patients because, you know, Peter was talking about it this morning in terms of communication. 
Okay? You say one thing, the patient hears something else, they think you're attacking them because they're not vaccinating their child, they go complain to the board, and now you've got to deal with that. And the law in your state says you need to be enforcing those things. You shouldn't be telling people not to get vaccinated. Public health says vaccination is good. 95% of the population is vaccinated. You should be encouraging people to get vaccinated. That would be considered the standard of care. It talks about the prevention of disease and the treatment of human ailments. The scope is broad. There's also the ability within the law to practice in a narrow scope, but the boards are not interpreting it that way. Documentation of the patient's health history, presenting complaints, progression of care, diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment plan must be reflected in the record-keeping written reports of the patient. The following minimum components must be documented in the patient file. They tell you explicitly in the state of Colorado, what do you got to have in your history? A reasonable effort should be made to obtain and review pertinent records as clinically indicated from other healthcare providers, imaging facilities, or laboratories. So your patient comes into your office, they have a primary healthcare provider, they got an internist, they got a cardiologist, they have an endocrinologist. Have you requested their records? Standard of care says you should. And so you can imagine being brought before the board and they want to find, you know, the kitchen sink to throw at you. That's one of the things they're going to use. Under examination, vital signs as clinically indicated. Well, they already told us when they're clinically indicated, right? Everybody. Everybody should have their vital signs taken. Document examinations of neuromusculoskeletal conditions using a format of inspection, palpation, neurological testing, range of motion, and orthopedic testing. They're telling you right there that if that's not the extent of your exam, you're not meeting the standard of care. Forget about whether or not any of these tests have any validity or reliability, okay? Even for the conditions that they purport to be testing, never mind subluxation, if that's what you're focusing on. And then, of course, you look to the education requirements, right? So this is a CCE-only state, Colorado. In order to get a license to practice chiropractic in the state of Colorado, you must graduate from a school that's accredited by the CCE. Now, they have some language in here that even people on our side will point to and say, oh, but it says it could be from uh, a school that has equivalent standards. Well, yeah, it's got to be equivalent to the CCE. And they want you to train them to be primary care physicians. So that doesn't help, right? They go in and list all the educational requirements. Again, I want you to notice the public health, the hygiene, the sanitation, obstetrics, gynecology. And by the way, inorganic and organic chemistry. And, and this is starting to concern us as a malpractice company. Because recently the CCE decided you don't have to have organic chemistry to get into chiropractic college. Still got to take biochemistry, but you don't have to have organic. Huh? How do you learn and study biochemistry if you don't understand organic chemistry? Right? Doesn't make any sense. But the schools are desperate for students, right? Enrollment is low, so let's open up the floodgates. Let's let them in. Let's let in the art history majors and the music majors and the people without science backgrounds. Okay? This is, this is what's happening in the schools. And now you get into the state, so you're, you, didn't, you didn't take organic chemistry, you didn't take physics. You got into chiropractic college, you graduate, you apply to the state. Oh, now what? 
What, what if the state turns around and says, you know what, we let in a bunch of people we shouldn't have let in? And this is what's happening because some of the states don't even know that these changes occurred relative to accreditation standards. Diagnosis, to include but not limited to physical, clinical, laboratory, all of the recognized diagnostic procedures. Syphilology. <laughs> I hope you guys are taking care of all the, you know, this major health issue in the state of Colorado, right? Because you've been trained, and you've been trained in psychiatry. Any chiropractic college or school meeting the requirements of this section and the rules and regulations adopted by the board shall be eligible for approval. This, this is bizarre, right? So you've got to meet both. This is what they can discipline you for. An act or omission that constitutes negligent chiropractic practice or fails to meet generally accepted standards of chiropractic practice. There's that generally accepted standards of chiropractic practice. Let's talk about drugs for a second, because that's the big thing in chiropractic these days, right? We've got to keep drugs out of the profession. Everybody's, all of the leadership in the profession has us focused on the drugs. I'm telling you right now, and I've said this over and over again, if people have heard me speak, you're tired of hearing me talk about this, drugs are a red herring. Drugs are not the issue. The issue is primary care, period, end of story. In order to be a primary care provider, you got to be able to prescribe drugs. And let's put this to rest once and for all. Primary care provider is not equal to a portal of entry provider. There is a difference between these two. Okay? You can, a primary care provider is always a portal of entry provider, but a portal of entry provider is not always a primary care provider. Optometrists aren't primary care providers. Podiatrists aren't primary care providers, but you can go to see both classes of those doctors without a referral from anybody else. They are a portal of entry providers. And what's happening with our leadership in this profession, and I'm speaking about the leadership on our side of the profession, that has sold out and is leading us like a Pied Piper into allopathic medicine, into the cartel, they are trying to convince you that primary care equals portal of entry. Does not. Primary care has some very significant responsibilities. These are the attributes of primary care, accountability, accessibility, coordination, comprehensiveness, continuity. The biggest one here is comprehensiveness of care. Primary care providers can treat and manage most conditions that most people have most of the time. Is that really what you want to do as chiropractors? You know, it, it makes no sense to me whatsoever why a chiropractor would want to be a primary care provider. Only a chiropractor would want to be the least paid and have the most responsibility in healthcare. <laughs> Only a chiropractor wants that. Nobody in medicine wants to be a primary healthcare provider. That's why there's a shortage of primary healthcare providers. Because they don't make any money and they're responsible for everything. And along come the chiropractors. Oh, I'll do that. I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> We've lost our minds. And we allow these leaders to continue to feed us this bullshit. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Getting a little upset. 
So here's the spectrum of care that's out there. Okay? We have pathogenic care, and this is, this, is the, you know, this is the entrenched model in healthcare is pathogenesis. Peter talked about it this morning. We have therapeutic care, which is tied to pathogenesis. We have salutogenic care, non-therapeutic care, and metatherapeutic care. Pathogenic model studies the origins of disease. It has to be focused on that. It's based on that. You have to determine what disease the person has before you can treat. Here's the definition of therapeutic. Bubble relating to the healing of disease. Now, for those of you that don't like the term therapeutic, you got to look at the definitions and the synonyms and say, well, some of those aren't too bad. Healing, curative, remedial, restorative, salubrious. like that word. I don't know what it means, but it sounds good. <laughs> Health-giving, tonic, corrective, right? We talk about corrective care in chiropractic. Well, to them, that's therapeutic, falls under that definition. So is the term therapeutic really all that bad? And then we look up non-therapeutic, and it says not relating to or being therapy. Well, that doesn't help. <laughs> we have our organizations. The ICA embraces a non-therapeutic model. The IFCO embraces a non-therapeutic objective of chiropractic. Salutogenic model. Studies the origins of health. Pathogenesis studies the origins of disease. Salutogenesis studies the origins of health. Right? Salutogenesis and pathogenesis side by side. We won't go through all of them for the sake of time. The basis here is that pathogenesis focuses on the disease and salutogenesis focuses on being healthy. Metatherapeutic. If you look in the literature on metatherapeutic care, you'll see a lot of this type of terminology okay, and these types of concepts in the literature experiential, awareness, intuition. There's a lot of spirituality and religion mixed in with this. Metatherapeutic and non-therapeutic care is embraced certainly by network spinal analysis. I want you to just kind of put in the back of your head for a minute under their key words here in, in Senzon's paper, uh, Epstein and Lemberger, look under keywords behavior change. Okay, that's going to come up later. So the chiropractor finds himself in this tug of war. You know, what are we? Are we therapeutic? Are we non-therapeutic? Are we pathogenic? Are we salutogenic? Constantly in this battle. I want you to understand where I'm coming from with this. Okay? Does disease even really exist? Okay, and you all are crazy enough to follow along with me for a few minutes on this. And where, where I first grappled with this was when I was a student. I was working in a psychiatric hospital. I was working in one. <laughs> I know what some of you are thinking. I was a clinical assistant. And I spent about a year and a half working on the adult psych psychiatric unit. And the adult psychiatric unit, this is in the 80s. And this adult psychiatric unit had, it was pretty much the only center in the United States, I mean, there were others, but none of them had the reputation this one did, for treating multiple personality disorder. And I was working in that unit. I worked there for about a year. And one day we had this woman who 
was a little upset and she wanted to leave. She didn't want to be in the hospital anymore, okay? And she decided she was going to walk out the door. Well, it's a locked unit, so, you know, she was taken by surprise when she tried to open the door and the alarms went off and all that stuff. And we ended up having to call, the nurse ended up having to call a code. And when a code is called in a psychiatric hospital, all the male staff from all over the hospital is sent on to your unit. And this woman was restrained, physically restrained, you know, hogtied, and put in a quiet room, okay? And that didn't stop her, though. She was bouncing all over the room, okay? And she was going to hurt herself. And so the nurse wanted to chemically restrain her, Haldol or Thorazine, one of those. And before she did it, she called the psychiatrist to get the doctor's order, get, you know, allow, allowing her to chemically restrain her. And the psychiatrist said to the nurse, well, what personality is manifesting right now? Nurse looks at me and the other male staff standing behind her, and we all like, oh, right? And the nurse points at me, Matt, go find out. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> Sends me back to uh, the room, and I'm looking at this woman trying to have a conversation with her, and there's a whole technique you use to try to figure out which personality is manifest. And it turns out it's a little girl one of her personalities. So I go back and I, I forget the, what, what the name of the little girl was, Jane or something like that. No offense, Jane. Um, and I tell the nurse and the nurse tells the doctor, Jane. And the doctor's like, huh, thank God we checked because you can't give the same dosage of Haldol to a child that you give to an adult. And had she given that dosage, would have killed this person. This is an adult, physiologically, anatomically. But because her personality was manifested as a child, understand the, the breadth and scope of the nervous system, okay? And what, what is possible in terms of the nervous system. So does disease exist? The reality is disease does not exist apart from our conceptualization of it. We assign the values to all of these diagnostic indicators. Other than that, disease doesn't exist. You know, it's like if, if a tree falls in a forest and, you know, is there a sound if nobody hears it? That sort of thing. So we know what the definition of diagnosis is. I said before, diagnosis is, treat, is a treatment warrant. In the pathogenic model, you cannot treat without a diagnosis. So one of the things we see in the malpractice world is a failure to diagnose. These are the charges against chiropractors because they got all these other things going on, but the chiropractor didn't diagnose anything except subluxation. At least that's the attitude from the regulatory boards. If you think about diagnostic reasoning, this is what it looks like. Some of my former and maybe even current students are about to have flashbacks. <laughs> this is um, differential diagnosis highway, right? In the pathogenic model, there are no exits on differential diagnos diagnosis highway. You never get out of this, okay? You have to constantly be evaluating what's going on in this patient from a diagnostic perspective. Now, if you're a student now from a subluxation perspective and a straight chiropractic perspective, you realize that the skill set is the same. The intention is different, but the skill set is the same because you should be applying some of these skills to the management of vertebral subluxation just as you would any other pathophysiological process. One of the things that comes into decision making is value judgments, right? When a person tells you something, if somebody says, hey, I had the worst headache I ever had in my life, or I'm having pain at night that keeps me awake, you as a doctor make a value judgment on that, that's a red flag. 
okay? And those value judgments are through triage, through thinking about physiological systems of the body that might be involved, anatomical sites that might be involved. But the key one here for the subluxation-centered, non-therapeutic, straight chiropractor is triage. See, in an ideal world with a regulatory model that understood what it is that we want to do, we would be safe and it would be okay for us to triage these patients and decide, listen, you're a chiropractic patient or you're not. All this other medical stuff you've got going on, I understand it's got to be taken care of, but you've got to see somebody else for that. And you triage them to that extent to get them the other care that they need while you manage their subluxations. Unfortunately, the boards, the regulatory environment isn't allowing the chiropractor to do that they're going to shut you down. I talked before about behavior change. I said, you know, keep a mental note about those key words from Sanzan's paper. I had a conversation with uh, Peter uh, maybe about a month and a half ago. We were talking about we were talking about what motivates people. You know, the whole pain, pleasure, fear, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, because Peter's a lover, right? He's, he's not about the fear. He's about the light. There's no question about it. You, you understand the work that I do. I got to deal with the fear, you know? It's just the nature of the kind of work that I do. But uh, in behavioral change, if you want to understand what sustains behavior, you want to help people change, and you look at the literature on this, again, not, not the world according to McCoy, there is a model for this. You've got to know the risks of bad behavior. You've got to know the benefits of good behavior. You've got to have the skills to do the good things. You have to have the resources to do the good things. And you've got to believe. Okay? Bad behavior, good behavior. This is the scare care. This is the fear. Okay? And you know in practice, listen, you've got to dial these up or down depending upon the patient in front of you. Now, when it goes overboard, we call it scare care, and it's unnecessary, and those types of things. Keep this in the back of your head for a second, as I talk about solutions. <clears throat> you know, I've often said there's two ways to have the tallest building in town. If you've heard me speak, you've probably heard me say that before. You can run around tearing down everybody else's building, or you can build the tallest building. Okay. You know, the, the scare care part would be running around tearing down everybody else's building. The, the, the good behavior part would be, well, just why don't you just build the tallest building, okay? And that's what we need to do in, in our side of the profession, our faction of the profession. We need to start building a tall building to address some of these other things that are going on. <clears throat> there are some good things out there. There's the CCP guidelines that support a subluxation-centered practice. There's an, the ICA guidelines that support a subluxation-centered practice. There are the PCCRP radiology guidelines that support taking x-rays for biomechanical reasons to determine if there's a subluxation. Here's the problem. The CCP guidelines are outdated. The ICA guidelines are about to become outdated. And these radiology guidelines are already outdated. Okay? So our tall build, we need to keep building these tall buildings. We can't just do it once and then not continue to build. So the Foundation for Vertebral Subluxation, we have this program, the Advancing Futures program, uh, in partnership with the ICPA and Cairo Futures, to do just that, the research agenda to answer these questions. One of our focuses right now is updating 
clinical practice guidelines for chiropractic. We're in the midst of developing this. We have, we have 12 chapters we have to do. We have the literature search completed on, I believe, three chapters right now. Of course, those things have to go through peer review. The chapter's got to be written. I mean, we're about a year away from even becoming close to completing this, but this is one of our main areas of focus right now because we've got to, we have to have evidence, we have to have clinical guidelines that support the style of care we're talking about. So when we talk about non-therapeutic care, you know what we need? We need a definition. We need a definition of what non-therapeutic care that isn't, well, go see therapeutic and it's the opposite of that. That's not going to work. We need something we're going to be able to hang our hat on. We, I want to thank all of the organizations and certainly individuals, many of you in this room, that uh, have supported us in our efforts through the foundation. And so I talked about building the tallest building, right? We talked about the positive. I talked about the light. But what about the evil? What do we do about the evil? Does everybody know who that is in the picture? That is Bashar Assad. He's responsible for the murder of a half a million people. Do we, do we just focus on the light? Or do we have to assemble a team to deal with that, to deal with the evil in this profession that is taking this profession into the garbage pail? You know, we're getting to a point in this profession where we're reaching a point of no return if we haven't reached it already. I believe that the principles that this profession are based on are going to get to the public. But I'm not so sure anymore that it's going to be through us because we've abdicated our responsibility. You know, the other side, the cartel, they're marching in lockstep. They're singing from the same sheet of music. You look at our side of the profession and the internal squabbling and the personalities and all the other bullshit that goes on. I mean, we are so splintered and so fractured, it's not even funny. And meanwhile, they're just sitting back and laughing at us. Here's one of the answers to the evil. The Supreme Court of the United States of America gave the chiropractic profession a gift a couple of years ago. They gave us a gift in this lawsuit between this, these companies that were in the teeth whitening business in North Carolina. And it pissed off the dentists. And the dentist went after them and said, cease and desist. Well, these companies that got, wanted to get into the teeth whitening business said, go screw yourself, pound sand, we can do this. And they sued them, went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in their favor. And the Supreme Court basically said, listen, you have active market players serving on these regulatory boards that are making decisions that affect the rank and file of other practitioners in the state. And so the Supreme Court basically laid these board members bare and said, you know what? You're going to be on your own because now these people can come after you and sue you. And we have to start taking advantage of this and systematically, state by state, where these boards have gone rogue and are going after chiropractors and hurting the profession, we got to start using this weapon to combat the evil. I know I'm out of time. I just want to finish this thought. Everybody knows who that is, right? In the picture, that's uh, Chris Kent and Martha Nessler. Chris Kent's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. One of the smartest.
human beings I've ever met. You know, Chris is not just smart, he's a savant. You know, and anybody that's ever spent any time with him knows what I'm talking about, okay? And I was having a conversation with him a number of years ago when I was practicing in Washington State, and we were trying to get the vertebral subluxation guidelines from CCP accepted within the state. And there were three people on the state board who didn't want it because they worked for an insurance company denying chiropractors' claims. And we were fighting with them for about a year, and we were going before the board for the last time. We had had focus groups. We hired a lobbyist. We got an attorney involved, the whole nine yards, the state association. And we were going before the board, and they were going to take their final vote. And I was having a strategy call with Chris, and we were talking about this issue because what the board members didn't like was the frequency and duration chapter in the CCP guidelines because that chapter said that as long as somebody had objective indicators of vertebral subluxation, they were entitled to an adjustment if it was clinically indicated. Makes sense, right? In other words, it's not based on, well, you've been under care for a month, that's it, you can't have anymore. It wasn't based on, well, you had six visits, you can't have anymore. It's based on, you're subluxated, we have objective indicators of that, you deserve an adjustment or at least a consideration of one. Well, they didn't like that because you can't cut claims with something like that. And Chris and I were talking about this, and Chris had had enough, and he got frustrated. He said, you know, I'm sick and tired of this. Chiropractors are not responsible for the epidemiology of vertebral subluxation. And he went on to talk for 45 minutes. I have no idea what he said after that because I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> and I continued to think about it that night, meditated it on, meditated on it, thought about it on the drive into the hearing the next morning, and it finally just dawned on me, like I felt so stupid that, that I didn't really even understand it. Chiropractors are not responsible for the epidemiology of subluxation any more than an oncologist is responsible for the epidemiology of cancer. It's not an oncologist's fault that cancer does what it does. It's not an oncologist's fault that cancer has the nature and characteristics of, of what it does and what it is and how it mutates. That's the nature of cancer. But you would think it absurd that an oncologist or the oncology profession wouldn't understand the epidemiology of cancer, right? You, you should run as far as you can, as fast as you can from that doctor. Well, we have the same ethical and moral obligation. We have an ethical and moral obligation as a profession to understand the epidemiology of vertebral subluxation and know which procedures and which inter interventions and which techniques are going to get the best results the quickest re results at the least cost. That's an ethical and moral obligation. I'm going to leave you with that thought. Let's build the tallest building. Thank you. Have a great rest of your weekend.